Death is always on the way, but the fact that you don't know when it will arrive seems to take away from the finiteness of life. It's that terrible precision that we hate so much. But because we don't know, we get to think of life as an inexhaustible well. Yet everything happens a certain number of times, and a very small number, really. How many more times will you remember a certain afternoon of your childhood? Some afternoon that's so deeply part of your being that you can't even conceive of your life without it. Perhaps four or five times more. Perhaps not even. How many more times will you watch the full moon rise? Perhaps 20. And yet it all seems limitless. A black star appears, a point of darkness in the night sky's clarity. Point of darkness and gateway to repose. Reach out, pierce the fine fabric of the sheltering sky. Take repose. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's February 15th, 2023, and that means we're in the general vicinity of Tree Fort Music Fest again. The Tree Fort Music Fest is a five-day music and cultural festival held at numerous venues throughout beautiful downtown Boise, as well as Julia Davis Park, now being the new location of the main stage, March 22nd through 26th, featuring such performers as Unknown Mortal Orchestra, Margot Price, Cautious Clay, Annie DeFranco, Dinosaur Jr., Lady Ray, Old 97s, Tig Nataro, Pinback, Built to Spill, and many, many more. Information and tickets can be found at treefortmusicfest.com. But to continue on with my recent David Bowie obsession, today the program considers Black Star Theory with its author, Leah Cardos, senior lecturer in music at Kingston University, London, UK, and co-founder of the Visconti Studio with music producer Tony Visconti. Black Star Theory takes a close look at David Bowie's ambitious last works, his surprise comeback project The Next Day, 2013, the off-Broadway musical Lazarus, 2015, and the album that preceded the artist's death in 2016 by two days, Black Star. The book explores the swirl of themes that orbit and entangle these projects from a starting point in musical analysis and features new interviews with key collaborators from the period, producer Tony Visconti, graphic designer Jonathan Barnbrook, musical director Henry Hay, saxophonist Donnie McCaslin, and assistant sound engineer Aaron Tonkin. These works tackle the biggest of ideas, identity, creativity, chaos, transience, and immortality. They enact a process of individuation for the Bowie meta-persona and invite us to consider what happens when a star dies. In our universe, dying stars do not disappear. They transform into new stellar objects, remnants, and gravitational forces. The radical potential for the black star is demonstrated in the rock star supernova that creates a singularity resulting in cultural iconicity. It's how a man approaching his own death can create art that illuminates the immortal potential of all matter in the known universe. 
Leocardo specializes in the areas of record production, pop aesthetics and criticism, and exploring interdisciplinary approaches to creative practice. She is set to write a book about Kate Bush's Hounds of Love, and her David Bowie YouTube video track analyses are not to be missed. It's an honor and pleasure to be hosting Cardos today. How are you doing today, Leah? I'm good, Doug. And can I just say that that introduction was beautiful? really lovely poetic thank you so my book club found a black star reference in paul bowles the sheltering sky and it was it just probably is a coincidence but the thematic alignment was so uncanny that um you know i have to bring it up are you familiar with that book the sheltering sky i'm not familiar i haven't read it but i have heard a few black star theory theories um but i'd love to hear <laughs> i'd love to hear this one yes and it well, doesn't seem unlikely because he was so bookish so and and it's kind of a beat type read and so it seems like something that he would be familiar with but um there's not much more beyond the line, you know, this black star appears, but it's kind of like this gateway beyond our, our mortal constraints, you know, or it's, so it's, it's the release somehow that, you know, that um, there's something really ominous about uh, what's going on in that book. And it's the time because it's like post-war and, and um, you know, they're trying to find identity and uh place and things but you know that's that's like the somehow to go beyond i think that's a really good catch though you know um i hear things like that and i think you know yes probably likely um you know the more you look at these last works the more you find and um you start to realize that david bowie loved a tissue of connection like he loved it you know there's just like a few threads, a web, you know, is sort of gathering mass of connections that are unrelated but related, intersecting but separate, and you end up with this really rich experience, um, you know, with the songs where there's never just one meaning to be found, it's just everything and nothing, and, and there's a suggestion of depth, which um, I find absolutely intoxicating um, about the last works, and yeah, that reference seems to fit just as nicely as any of the other ones that have been unearthed so far. It's exciting to think as well that there might be more to be found. The longer we spend with this work, it's like Easter eggs keep falling out of it. It's fantastic. Well, I actually want to start kind of in more of the messianic space where um, the Bowie persona is almost this messiah figure. You kind of see that in uh, the next day video where he's, you know, the the Messiah, but the interesting thing that I'm wondering about is, so Philip K. Dick had this experience in 1974 where um, he seems to have a theophany where God kind of broke through normal reality. But when he wrote about it in his book, Vallis, he kind of used David Bowie as the uh, the Messiah in the book. Have, are you familiar with that? The Mother yeah. Goose character in Vallis? Yes, yes. Yeah, which, you know, I think in the past, um, you know, I just thought, oh, it's because he was so culturally other, you know, and because he was this alien, this sort of, you know, evolved. And then the the, the, messi the messianic sort of thing of Ziggy, I just thought he was grabbing onto that reference. But um, it's, you know, as that reference ages, it just becomes, yeah, even more astounding that he did that. <laughs> it's really quite amazing. 
because like Brian Eno is kind of looped in in that book too as as the you know the keyboard wizard making synchronicity music yeah but it kind of opens up part of your reading to like synchronicity and Carl Jung and 42 clues so why did David Bowie have 42 clues to uh the next day well the one of the theories is that there were three words for every track on the album three three words that associate with the theme of the song and then they're in a sequence um and i mean this was just caught you know because obsessive fans were just staring at you know his missives from the other side of celebrity where he was you know inaccessible so he's sort of these cryptic lists of books and cryptic list of words um you know, it took a little while for the for the fans and the you know the bloggers, particularly like Chris Leary and etc., to figure out that actually the three words match really well to the to the songs, and then that was confirmed later. But of course, you know, the magic for forty two, you know, the, the Doug Adams thing as well. But um, you know, the evidence uh, to suggest that that's what he was thinking. But you know, yes, it's it's nice, it works. Well, so um, I share the same initials as David Bowie. Yes, but noticed, yeah. And those are four, two also. So if you do D, that's the fourth letter. B is the second letter. And oh, so, my God. You're right. And yeah. so it could be really simple like that. Yeah, um, could be. And, but, I mean, like you have mentioned, like, in one of the songs, I think the chord progression from that the next day, he spells out D-E-A-D. Yeah, almost. So yeah, in that song, you have to have a capo on the first fret, which is the obvious way to play it because it's in, it's in a key that's you know awkward to play. But if you put a capo on the first fret, um, then it's actually D E A D uh, instead of E flat or whatever. So it ends up being like spelling out the word dead. But um, yeah, you have to do one little step of abstraction to get there. And I was like think... looking, I was on YouTube looking at videos of him performing rock and roll suicide uh, on the guitar and um, looking at whether he had a fret on there. And you can see it on um, Sound and Vision Tour. <laughs> I was like zooming in on videos going, easy playing that song with the, the capo on the fret. But yeah. So do you think, I mean, so my takeaway after spending a lot of time with your your analysis in the book and then also on the videos is that there is a, there's a level of intentionality there in what he's trying to express, but then there's also a level that just comes through um, as an artist, whether or not it's intentional or not. Yeah, I feel like the intentionality of some of the reference making that he's doing is explicit and meant to be read as such. Um, I think there are certain things that he does, like quoting his own music from the past, um, drawing upon really obvious and explicit references and pulling them to the, this new frame the next day. And I feel like that's not accidental, that's not subliminal, that's definitely deliberate. And so that changes it, the assemblage art of it all, you know, so why did you put that there and what does it do now, that in proximity with this and how do those two things have different energy because of it? Um, but then there is uh, another level where, you know, um, if you sort of just keep digging around and keep looking at everything, then all of a sudden, you know, you can start seeing things <laughs> that may or may not be intentional. I think I've had some people responding to my YouTube videos and someone like counted out all of the big strums at the end of Lazarus and then 
said, you know, oh, it's the seven sins, you know, you start, your, your brain starts going off in all these different directions, and you're like, okay, but, and so with and with my analysis of the last work, I had to really rein that in a little bit, you know, you can sort of, you know, stare at a painting for so long, and it's, you think it's starting to talk, um, so it really had to be like, you know, well, what is this doing, what does that do, this thing that I've noticed, is it doing anything important or powerful or communicative in the context of this work? Does it bring anything to the table that makes it even more interesting? And so I sort of also had to stop myself as well. This is on a tangent, but like the Black Star videos and all the Black Star theories and all of the discourse around that after he died, it got really intense and people were reading a lot into everything. And I found it a little bit manic and a bit in, a bit too much, and I had to keep sort of going back to the music um, to begin with, you know, and just to look at what is the music doing, and then how do all of these other ideas sit with that, um, and then that sort of kept me grounded in, and so really music theory, black star theory was sort of my, my spot there. I didn't want to start reaching for the Necronomicon and, and, you know, going into some weird, weird space about esoteric spells and things. Um, I really just wanted to look at, you know, what's that music doing at that tempo with those instruments, with these references. Um, so with the, going back to your in intentionality point, um, yeah, I kind of, I'm mostly interested in the stuff that feels like a deliberate statement, that feels like he plucked that and that's very conspicuously placed there. And then looking at it like um, someone would look at a piece of art and go, well, why is that red then? Or why is that why is that face like that? You know, and then looking at those details in, in a frame. The song Dollar Days really communicates that because the analysis is that, you know, he's singing about going home, but there's no... There's no cadence that takes you home. And That's so, right, yeah. And it, it just seems like maybe mentally he didn't connect that, but it, it feels like it was connected on... I mean, and then you, you also mentioned that the final track of Black Star does finally hit that note, and you do make it home, kind of. Yeah, there is In a that, strange, I, kind of bittersweet way, almost like a, mm. uh, a knowingness. Yeah, those those last two tracks do so much with and harmony and repetition. It's really fascinating. But I would, um, I mean, just I just had a little spiel then about intentionality. But I do think as a composer, he was thinking about these things, and I get that that sense from Henry Hay, who was working with that same year, because they did a similar trick with the final track on Lazarus, which was a reworking of Heroes. And um, Henry Hayes telling me all about how in his arrangement of Heroes, he never lets the song resolve and the root note is never used. So out of the chord notes, when the root note is not the bass, then it's la it lacks stability. So you put the root on the third and it feels like your upper step. If you're on the fifth, it feels like you're balancing and it can go either way and it's very teetering. And he played with that idea in that song to make sure that, you know, were the moment when Thomas Jerome Newton dies is when it finally resolves and the root goes, uh, you know, and resolves down the bass note plays the root note and that's the ending, it's the finale. So I know that, you know, um, Bowie was engaging with Henry Hay around the time he was working on this, you know, this material. It's also, you know, Bowie's use of harmony throughout um, his career right from the start, um, transposition in his early work from 1967, the way that he navigates uh, tonality in a way that's really meaningful. Um, I'm 
pretty certain that he would have as a device, a compositional device and not some kind of, you know, autodidact, intuitive, you know, um, subliminal thing coming through. I, I think his uh, composition practice was really quite sophisticated. Um, and there's evidence from that from the start, you know, the way that he kind of navigates the harmonic tensions through life on Mars is really quite masterful. It's someone who understands um, the power of harmony to tell a story right back from the start, you know. So um, that's one thing that I would, I, I quite, um, I mean, who, who knows for sure? You need to talk to him and he's a dead man, you can't. But like, I, I, I really suspect that that was done with a certain element of knowing, just because it's so meticulously constructed. Well, so that's some of my favorite parts of like the video series is how music education nerdy it gets. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I'm more of like a music, school dropout and so my ear training like i can appreciate what you're talking about but i need you to hold my hand to be able to hear it so when like i know what a tritone is but i don't necessarily i can't say oh yeah there it is that's that thing is doing that you know there's the diablos in music oh um, yeah right <laughs> my question is so like you're talking about these different modes that david bowie is employing like a Phrygian and Mixolydian and things, which are, um, it just adds more uh, colors and flavors to like a tra traditional Western major and minor scales. How common is that in pop music or, you know, um, rock music in general? It's maybe more common than you think. Um, uh, like, it's part of... Um, it's a little bit like in rock music, Mixolydian's quite well known because it's not too far away from the blues scale because that also has a flattened seven. A lot of blues music might play and feel a bit Mixolydian or rock music might feel a little bit Mixolydian. Um, but it's the modal effect. It's the weirdness is the thing that I'm interested in. Um, you know, there are chord progressions like, you know, I'm trying to think of like some examples like, Paradise City by Guns N' Roses in Mixolydian mode and it doesn't seem exotic or special it just seems like normal so it, it's how the effect is played into and the strangeness heightened uh, you know and I think what Bowie does with his modal work is that he just makes the music weird he queers it um, by really leaning into these modal effects really kind of reminding the listener that this is not normal this is a little bit strange it's a bit angular it's got weird edges um, so in a way, it's how the music is is composed. Um, sometimes music is modal and you don't necessarily realise because it's quite standard except for maybe a chord change. But what Bowie does is he leans into the modal effects with melody and riffs and, um, and so the angles of his lines are all a bit different to what we're used to. Um, and I think that's one of the secrets that sets his music apart particularly in a in an oeuvre that's marked by so much stylistic change you know the the compositional voice throughout is really quite consistent and um and I just love talking about it as my pet subject so um yeah I, I really enjoy getting in there and getting geeky with it all yeah I I guess I had no idea how musical he was because he just seemed like more of a a persona than anything for so long but like yeah he's the the connecting thread throughout his whole career. Yeah, and I think as well, a lot of um, musicology has ignored pop music for a long time. And so a lot of criticism and analysis of pop music has been left in the hands of 
record critics um, or cultural commentators or people who as poetry. Um, and, you know, with Bowie, there's so much to look at. Um, there's so much going on in the theatre of his artistry, um, in the acting that he brings to his songwriting and in the costumes and all of the, you know, gender transgression that he engaged with in the 70s, early 70s particularly, that that's been a huge focus. Um, but, you know, every now and then people will say, you know, but what about those melodies? Like, what about uh, Ashes to Ashes? Like, who writes about life on Mars, who heck writes that? Or loving the alien, or you know, you go through all of the decades of Bowie's career, and there are songs that are just remarkably strange but beautiful. And um, what I what I've sort of been fascinated by, and what draws me to him as a fan of his music, is is this this compositional voice, you know, and this particular gift for harmony um, that's unusual but unusually sophisticated. And um, and you're right, you know, uh, throughout his career, he's almost disowned being a musician, like that, you know, um, that UK art school tradition of being a non-musician, being, an, you know, an amateur, coming to your artwork like a child. Um, yeah, I, I've always been an advocate for, for Bowie's, you know, he's quite a well-developed composer and at the end of his life, an arranger and composing and producing demos completely on his own at the end with no collaborator in the room, which is what marks a lot of his earlier creativity. Well, so I that was something interesting that I learned in your book is that, so he really, you know, the theatrical element was something that he really, really valued. There was a, a moment in time when he was, thinking about giving up music and just going right into musical theater? Yeah, there's like a few interviews in the 70s where he's wanting to give up rock and roll. Uh, he's telling Cameron Crowe, I've rocked my role. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a film director. Um, want to do music theater, um, all of that sort of thing. There's a lot of interviews where he said a lot of stuff, though. I mean, you know, the more you look at the record of interviews, you realize that um, particularly in his early career, he was searching for something you know, he wasn't ever satisfied just doing the Ziggy thing. He wasn't satisfied just doing glam rock. He wanted to do musical theatre. He wanted to do disco. He wanted to do soul. He wanted to make movies. He wanted to be, um, you know, this larger artist than just being pigeonholed into one style or one category. Um, and you even see that later in his career. He wanted to make art. He was on the board for Modern Painters Journal. He was, you know, um, engaging in all sorts of activities activities, not just songwriting. Um, and so I think rather than seeing it as Bowie disowning music or, you know, distancing himself from one art form, I think what it more points towards is this sort of, um, well, it points, in my mind, it points to two things. First of all, it, it sort of, for him, seeing his artistry as being just more than just one thing, you know, bigger, it, it's a bigger work. And then that points to this idea, which I think has come into sharp focus since he died, and that is the Bowie project across time. You know, it hangs together remarkably well. It's very coherent. It's almost like this sort of um, whole artwork, this whole performance piece. You know, the, the persona all along was Bowie, and then there was David Jones, the artist behind it. Um, and I really like that idea. I think it works really nicely. There's a German word for it, which I'm not sure how to pronounce. It's a Gustumptens work. Oh, Gesamtkunstwerk. Yeah, Gesamtkunstwerk. I think that applies to the Bowie project. And, you know, um, it's a thought that I had through the David Bowie is exhibition, when you sort of see the deconstructed Bowie in all the 
all the pieces and parts, the recipe that you can cook up for yourself at the end where the gig happens. You're like, well, you're reminded all the way throughout David Bowie is dot, 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 and you get to make that up. It's your decision who David Bowie is. And I think that was part of the whole project's aim all along, you know, um, which I which I really like the idea of that. So I seem to remember like Joseph Campbell speaking to that, like a Schopenhauer quote, where you look back upon your life and it seems like there's this narrative that was always there, but it doesn't feel, you, you know, like you're you're trapped in, in, in a plot line necessarily. But so how, like that's the thought, like with with his choices and things, the intentionality throughout the course, it does seem like it's there because in your book you say, um, you know, he's, he begins with this kind of space odyssey, but then he ends that narrative arc in the stars. Yeah, yeah. And I also think that um, there's, I mean, I, I don't want to say that he, you know, hatched a plan at age 19 and followed it through to the end, to the letter. I think there's definitely been searching and growing and experimentation and failures and wins along the way. But what I think has happened with the last works, or at least this is a thing that I'd like to suggest as a possibility with my book, is that after a period of being away, and perhaps informed by his you know, illnesses or whatever was going on in his life, I think that he thought very long and hard about what David Bowie, in inverted commas, was and could be at the end of his life. And um, really played with it. You know, you look at the next day, you look at its presentation, you look at his absence, very conspicuous. You look at the framing of it all, right. how he's taken parts of his past and turned them upside down and blotted them out and left space for you to fill with stuff. Um, you know, all of that lovely referencing of his music and the past and archetypes, you know, like drawing upon archetypes in his work. And then following the the idea of blurring who Bowie is with, you know, fictional characters like Thomas Jerome Newton and blurring that with his own own biography and really making it very entangled so that you're meant to think of him when you see him and you're meant to think of that story when you think of his story and pulling it all together in a lovely knot and asking you to deal with it. And then with Blackstar, of course, pulling in the lifelong meditations on mortality. And that this, you know, this lovely idea of being inspired by the, you know, the Kubrick film, the start, and this idea of this, you know, cosmic ascension, um, you know, somehow being possible and depicted uh, in the end of, of Black Star. And a lot of our readings of Black Star are kind of uh, informed and coloured and flavoured by the artwork that jo that Jonathan Barnbrook came up with independently of listening to the music and the video, which, you know, admittedly David Bowie did devise, but he also had Johan Renk there you know, coming up with stuff. And we tend to sort of associate Black Star with that imagery and that darkness and that, you know, that image of the the iconic star, the five-pointed star. But when you look at the music, it's not as cosmic as all of that. You know, the music is is really quite messy and chaotic and confused and, and emotional and also feels a lot like a struggle with of an ego. You know, there's there's definitely a sense of wanting to control at the start and letting go at the end. And, and so... You know, I think um, when we're looking at the remystification of, of the Bowie persona and what he did, I mean, he constructed that and he enacted it by not talking to us and not appearing and not giving us any information, um, again, speaks to this idea of a, of a performance, you know, and, and David Bowie being a, a performance that 
I, I think he thought about it and he um, and then he did it. He decided to do it that way. So the thing, yeah, the interesting thing that I got from your an analysis is the uh, the confrontation with shadow. So like, like the late work is not necessarily uh, all stellar, but definitely grisly and uh, dark. And it is this com like Jungian confrontation with with the self so that you can yeah. move beyond it. Yeah, yeah, the Jungian stuff, uh, I remember, because, you know, this isn't my first book and I'm an academic and um, as an academic book, you know, uh, well, I don't know what it's like in America, but academics in the UK tend to shy away from Jung and tend to go to Freud um, rather than Jung. Uh, <laughs> and so I remember talking to someone at, at here at my institution about, you know, all this Jungian stuff, you know, I, I found references to Bowie going to the Red Book exhibition and, and I've read the Red Book and my God, there's lines and there's images through that that just seem really resonant, like he's plucked them. And um, and I went and saw Lazarus a few times and I'm like, gosh, this is really Jungian as well. God, that shadow, you know, it's like, and I remember saying to, to somebody, you know, like, oh, do you really want to go there with the Jungian stuff? <laughs> but I found this book by um, John Izod who um, is like one of the only academics that I've read on interpreting media and media narratives like films and TV shows through a Jungian dream analysis lens. And I found it so useful and, and it really opened up um, the last works for me because I could suddenly see all this archetypal work going on, not only in, you know, the songs and the lyrics, but also in the, his use of voices and the music videos and the way that um, he confronts darkness in a way that seems to be about engineering confrontations with the ugly dark side of ourselves in order to. And um, you know, particularly in dark, gory songs of the next day, he seems to be holding up a dark mirror very much in the same way that he was with, you know, number one outside, which of course is a dream as well. And so, you know, you've got the artist in drag, murdering themselves and investigating their own murder via some kind of cut-up, subliminal cut-up. And, you know, in the next day what you have is is Bowie, whatever you think he is, he's not telling you what to think. He's like, you decide. Here's a blank space. But these songs are going to be dark and troubling and what you make of them is up to you. And um, I find that absolutely fascinating. And, um, yeah, very, very Jungian. And, you know, Tony Ursler was like, yeah, we've had conversations, uh, you know, I think just after Bowie died, he published a few interviews um, that maybe he said a little bit too much. I'm not sure. But, you know, he he was talking about their long conversations about, you know, preferring a Jungian model to artistry than a Freudian one. And they were talking about how within a, a performance art scenario, you can actually enact this of individuation you, you can enact this idea of confrontation and healing and um and i think it's really fascinating you know one artist working with light and shadow <laughs> another one working with imagery and sound um but both of them quite interested in this uh, multiplicity of the self and embracing it not trying to cure it you know yeah that's a good segue into the the stage play which i definitely had trouble with but you saw that twice in person what was it like to be in the room experiencing that because it's loud and it's it's a uh, uh, you know boisterous or also somewhat violent yeah I saw it um 
a few times. So I saw it in the opening week in New York with a bunch of friends who travelled over there to see it um, on the press night. Um, and um, it was troubling. I remember kind of loving it, but also not really understanding it. We came out, we all had arguments about whether it was bad or not. <laughs> yeah. Sort of, I remember like sort of someone I was with was like, I hated it. And then someone else was like, I don't get it. And I was like, I don't get it either, but I found it quite moving and, you know, troubling. And we're trying to dissect it within the frame of like, okay, let's just forget, you know, about Bo for a second, but does it work as a continuation of Thomas Jerome Newton's story? Not really. <laughs> like, does it work as a Bowie jukebox musical? And they were like, not really. Um, but I was compelled to see it a few times. And I, I, my friend and I went and saw it again that week in New York and were just, again, I was just kind of troubled by it. I was, I found it upsetting. I found it quite discombobulating. It, it took humour and pantomime, but then like quite visceral violence, really good uh, music, song and dance numbers, then sort of brushed up against surreal depictions of, of a girl being knifed to death at the end and milk coming out and all sorts of things and, uh, and sad versions of songs. And um, it's only, in, you know, after he died, did it all click into place and you're like, oh, uh, oh okay, right. And then I went, went saw it in King, King's Cross here in London um, the following year, 2017, and the mood was so different the energy the the crowd were bringing to it and the way that the actors were portraying it felt a little bit different um but still just as troubling uh you know still upsetting and um of all the things that i wanted the next uh with the the last works this was the one that um once i really got into the script and i got a copy of the i got a copy of the play the filmed version of it and i really studied it was that i realized that as a live performance streaming past you in real time, it's almost impossible to understand it. And I think as a text, as a script, as a, as a, as a piece of work that you can revisit and dig into, I think it really opens up and it's really rewarding. Um, so on the other hand, though, I think the fact that it is a live theatrical enactment is somehow ceremonial and repetitive and there's something magical about that and so now you know when you see Lazarus in whatever incarnation it is in it's somehow become this place of of a place to grieve a place to to heal a place to spend time in person uh, you know and Bowie gets to perform uh, and the songs are performed and that for whatever purposes and intents is Bowie up there even though it is Jerome Newton even though it is an actor and so there is this Lazarus effect this kind of you know Dennis Potter thing you know where the, the work continues and therefore the the persona of the artist also continues and it's wrapped up in it um, and so I found the ceremonial healing um, immortal dimensions of it are absolutely linked to it being theatre, you know. Uh, but I don't think that the depth and the nuance of the of the story and the construction of it necessarily translates so well with your experience in them in real time, which I think is the problem perhaps with the piece. But maybe if it becomes more accessible and people can spend time with it, um, maybe it'll grow in appreciation. I hope so. Yeah, I know the literal events were difficult to follow but then when you kind of employ this more jungian lens and the, like this dream 
aspect um and the color scheme and the, the, the <laughs> fact that the windows kind of make it look like you're inside a head well i see it, i missed all of that stuff like when i went and saw it i didn't get that it was a dream i've had to work that out for myself and i only discovered that and i've seen it three times I only discovered that when I was digging into interviews with Ender Walsh and, you know, Evo Van Hove and like looking at, um, he was the one who said, you know, yeah, it's meant to look like a face. It's inside. And he's the one in the preface to the script that was published is said, you know, it's a morphine dream, you know, and this is the last dream. And so, and then he was the one that mentioned Singing Detective, which is about, uh, a man in a hospital bed losing consciousness and, and, and you know, his, his, his sublimations of his desires and anxieties becoming these sort of psychedelic musical experiences. And so when I put those dots together, I was like, of course it is. Of course it's a dream. Oh, look, and there's the shadow and there's the anima. And, oh, yeah, and it's all flesh-coloured and he's in his pyjamas. Oh, and he doesn't move. And he's in a, he's in a, he's in a you know, in a state where he sleeps, he dreams. It opens up, he wakes up at the beginning uh, and he goes to sleep or dies at the end in the same place. I didn't get that when I saw it live, and I was trying to get it. <laughs> so, you know, maybe uh, the maybe those things could have been made more explicit um, in the you know in the show itself. Although from the accounts from my research, um, all the people associated with the play, I, was, I found a really good account of someone who was assisting Robert Fox and who said that Bowie didn't want to give anything away. Like even when they were looking at poster imagery, you know, he explicitly chose the one that just said nothing. So this kind of withholding of the secrets, this kind of, you know, keeping it almost impenetrable perhaps feels to me like something that Bowie was, you know, trying to do at the end there with that piece. That's the really striking thing that I found w with your work is that in my mind as someone not as connected, um, I just assumed that David Bowie invented the zeitgeist. Like he was this magi magician just creating these magic moments, but I had no idea that, you know, where he takes seemingly mundane influences and then transmutes them into something. So he was just a product of his moment in each incarnation being inspired by the things around him and then turning that into something, you know, just kind of um, furthering the zeitgeist, I guess, or. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good way of putting it. I think he um, was like a proper postmodernist, you know, in the sense of just looking around and using it all as color to paint with. Um, but that doesn't mean that he, you know, I was having this discussion with someone the other day, on a panel who was I was with on a panel who was saying you know oh Bowie was a th you know he's a magpie and he stole things and I was like well no it's not that what it is 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 you know it's it's a mode of artistic operation where you are literally grabbing at everything to express yourself you know you are assembling constantly a vision of something it doesn't mean it's not original it just means that you're using what's around you and soaking things up and uh, synthesizing them into new things uh, and he did that with fashion, he did that with his musical influences, and he did that with music, but also his references. And I think as well, another big thing is just the literary stuff, you know, the all the books that he read, the, the philosophical ideas, um, 
all the esoteric stuff, you know, uh, and there are people out there that are much better on that. There's another um, writer on Bowie called Chris O'Leary, probably aware of his work, but he's really good at like triangulating all those lovely literary references uh, in his work. But um, it is a language of references, you know, and at the end of his life, he's using his career as part of that lexicon. Uh, of expression, which is what makes that work really exciting for someone like me who loves digging around all that stuff. Well, so have you done all the Bowie digging you can, or is there more <laughs> for you in this arena? <laughs> I don't know. Um, it was really intense, this experience. I dived into it um, expecting it to be one thing, and then the writing itself made it into something else, which was much much more, um, it felt more like a, a pound of flesh, I don't know. And at the end of that experience, I felt like oh, I've bowied my bowie now, I've done it. Um, and I, I am writing about Kate now, but um, I am also talking about possibly doing a little bit of writing about his period in the 80s and um, looking at his work in the 80s and what it's doing, uh, just because it tends to be disregarded as cheesy mm -hmm. or, alternately depending who you talk to whether it's you know the nadir or the zenith of his career or, um but i think there's a lot of interesting things happening in the late 80s that are really important for him as an artist and the way that he navigated that failure i think is really important so i'm really interested in all that but um in terms of musical analysis i'm sure i'll be drawn back to to doing it. it's like one of my favorite things to do is dig around bowie's music and i've been sort of flirting with analysis, uh, analyzing stuff, you know, from earlier in his career, not just the late stuff for a while, but um, yeah. There's only one more YouTube video to do, which is I can't give everything away. Then I might take a break for a little while while I write the Kate thing, but I will be back. I know I will. Well, so the videos are so effective um, because you're able to say the thing with your with your voice, but then also communicate it with the music underneath. And, you know, like I said, hold my hand and show me exactly what you're talking about. Um, are the videos fun for you or is that is that something completely different? Do you think you'll make those for the, the Hounds of Love book too? Or is that just kind of a one-off fun thing that you did? Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think why I did it. I, I did it because I understand that writing about music with words um, is it's really hard, you know, and you're just describing a phenomenon that is much easier to comprehend with another sense. And, um, and I really wanted to help people with that section of my book. I remember I was encouraged to lean into my musicologist, you know, mode because it's an academic book. But I even, you know, my friend who helped sub-edit my book, she was just like, I'm sure that's fine. I don't understand what you're talking about. And I was trying really hard <laughs> to make it understandable and she still couldn't access it. And I thought, oh, that's really sad because that's the, the core of the book is like, you know, if you actually get rid of all your feelings and how you feel about Bowie being dead and all your fears around that and just look at what the music's doing, actually it's a lot more rewarding and there's a lot more going on than you might have thought there was. And that was the whole point. And so I really wanted to open up the music and it made me sad to think that people were glossing over. And I remember a few of the first reviews of my book came back and people were reviewing it like, oh, it's it's really interesting, but wow, those sections are difficult to understand. So that's why videos to just explain, uh, and I do enjoy doing them. Um, and yeah, it's just been really lovely uh, to actually just, you know, 
this is what I meant when I said that quite unpenetrable, you know, paragraph in that section of the book. This is what I mean. I'm, this is just really quite simple. You know, it's it's this thing that he did. I love it. You know, and so it was really nice to do. Um, I just wish I had more time to do that kind of thing because creation is no joke. Like, man, it's hard stuff. Uh, so, takes me a while. And yeah, and then the, the Black Star video was like, you know, feature film length. Like, you know, it's, I need to, I need to spend a yeah, a good chunk of time getting that together. Yeah. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Oh, my gosh. We're off already. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to Leah Cardos on 42 Minutes. More information about her work can be found on her website, leahcardos.com, and the YouTube video channel, to which we'll link for more information about the Sync Book, our guests to share out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. Just type in TreeFort and over 10 years of shows will appear. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thank you so much. And if Bowie meant for these to be his last words to the world then the answer you're looking for is dot, dot, dot.
can't let you go.